before we begin, you just need to know that this is my favorite day of the year. Like, I love Epiphany. I am told that my first word after saying mama and dada as a child was light. Maybe that was foreshadowing. I don't know. But this is my favorite day of the church year. And so I want you to find your bulletin and find the post-it note that was placed inside of it. If you don't have a bulletin, you are welcome to come and grab one from any of the stations because you will need this post-it note. I'll explain a little bit more towards the end of our sermon, but you are going to be writing something on this note. And so as we begin to unpack these two passages this morning, I want you to think about and comp uh, contemplate sins and transgressions. Two very cheerful things for us to think about. But nonetheless, I want you to think about things that you can identify as your own personal shortcomings as we sit in God's presence this morning. But I also want you to think about our communal shortcomings and our communal transgressions as this specific church, but also we as Christians, as part of the church universal. Because we are indeed part of the body of Christ, and no matter how hard we try as individuals or communities, there are times when we fail to live into the identity of being a part of the body of Christ. And so as we look at these passages from Matthew and Leviticus, if there is a word, a transgression, a shortcoming that comes to your mind, I invite you to hold on to that word and to carry it with you as we move through our scripture passages this morning. But before we get to that point, would you pray with me? Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each and every one of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, for you, O oh Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Ten days into the new year, the high priest exits the temple with a goat. It has already been quite a long day for the priest. It has been a sobering and somber day. A day that has been marked with intricate and ornate rituals where every movement and every word is performed with holy intentionality and a symbolic meticulousness. The priest has already changed his garments once out of a golden garment into a linen one and he would change his garments three more times before the day was complete. He has already washed his body in a ritual bath called a mikvah twice, and each time he washes his hands and his feet twice. So in total, he would wash his body five times that day and his hands and feet ten times before the sun would set. Already during this day, he has sacrificed a bull for his own personal individual sins and the sins of his family. He gave an incense offering in the Holy of Holies, which is the most sacred space in the temple, where God was believed to dwell and where humans could only be present one time a year. The priest has already entered that sacred space twice, and he would get to walk into it just one more time. 
He has already taken a first goat and sacrificed it outside of the temple for the sins of his own kind, of his own tribe, the Levites, who were the priests, the religious leaders, and the keepers of the religious order. So all of this has already happened. And now the priest stands with a second goat. He has become unburdened each and every time he has made an offering or a sacrifice and confessed sins. And now he stands at the gate and he takes both of his hands and places them on the head of this goat. And then he confesses each and every sin of the whole community, of all of Israel, of the entirety of the children of God. And he speaks these sins, and he symbolically places them on the head of this goat. And then he sends that goat out into the wilderness, out into the desert, where those sins cannot thrive. They cannot be nourished by water or food, and the only option is for them to wither and die and not return back to the community. But the day is not over. The priest still has much to do. He will still read from the Torah and he will wash his body and his hands and feet again and again. He will, he will perform more sacrifices, but each time when he performs these rituals, he does so unburdened by the sins not only of himself and of his family, but of the religious order and the entire community he is a part of. He has felt so burdened by carrying these sins, refusing to drop them or avoid them. But I hope that he is lightened by the cathartic symbolism of putting those failures out to die or to starve where they can live no more. It doesn't happen very often, I will admit, but whenever I have wandered into the book of Leviticus, it has always felt like it is a book that was written for people like me, someone who bears the title of clergy. There is something comforting in knowing that there is a book that is filled with mysterious rituals that probably sound foreign and odd to us in the year 2023, but this is a book that is meant for the religious leaders for a community of faith. I appreciate each time that I read about these strange and mysterious and symbolic rules that govern the religious way of life, that govern the way that we relate to God. Several years ago, I listened to a sermon preached on this passage from Leviticus, and it is one that I have come back to more than once. After hearing that sermon and in the years following, I find myself coming back to this passage because it is one that makes me think so honestly about sin and makes me think about the need and the importance of atonement. Admittedly, sin and atonement are two topics that I and probably most of us in this room shy away from as progressive to moderate Baptists, but this passage puts the idea of sins and transgressions and shortcomings right in front of us and makes us pause to think about what we do with them. And what a perfect time to talk about sins and transgressions as a new year begins, a chance to start over or restart. 
This passage is a reminder that the new cannot thrive if the old is allowed to remain. This passage reminds us that sin is complicated. Sin is an individual thing, and I must take ownership of my own sins and shortcomings. But sin is also communal. We are a part of a living, breathing community that sins, that falls short because we're human. And my sins cannot be freed until we are all freed. But I am also drawn to this passage because as a minister, oh, how many times I wish that I had a goat to put my hands on and lay the sins of myself and of the people that I have been called to lead and to lay those sins on that goat and send it out into the wilderness and to say, go away from here, please. We need to start over. We need a new beginning and we need a chance to start new again. So here we are focusing on a ritual that would have happened on the 10th day of the Jewish New Year because we too have just begun our own new year. Resolutions fill our heads where sugar plums danced just a couple weeks ago. It's impossible to find a parking spot at the gym. We have shared our Whole30 recipes and are showing off our new workout equipment. Even our social media pages have shifted their focus from toys and electronic gadgets to color-coordinated office supplies and promises that this is just the one item you need to clean your whole house in an instant. It's the new year, and we're all kind of filled with this sense of transformation and the excitement of having an opportunity to become new again. There's potential here. This year, we tell ourselves, it will be better. I will be better, we will be better, it will be different. And for us, in this community, we are doubly facing a new year because this, God willing, is the year where we will also call a new senior pastor to our church. We have heard this morning that soon we will have a pastor search committee who will begin their important and faithful work, bringing us one step closer to the next chapter of our church. It won't be long before a new pastor arrives to do exactly what a pastor does. Which is what exactly? Have you ever noticed that in the Old Testament, the priests, the designated religious professionals, they're not the preachers. They're not. People experience God all over the place and are empowered and encouraged to testify to that experience. People like Sarah and Moses, Miriam and Jacob, Esther and Abraham, they encounter God and they try to explain God and teach us about God. But these people are rarely priests. The priests actually don't seem responsible for the community's experience of God at all. The faithful people gather at the temple not to hear the word from, a Lord, from the Lord in an articulate sermon given by the priest, but because the Lord is present at the temple and the Lord is ready to speak. The priest sacrifices and atones and purifies and decrees right behavior so that the people can be in the right state to be God's people. In Leviticus, the priest seems to be far more in charge of keeping the space between God and the community clear 
so that God can be experienced whenever and wherever God wants to be experienced. Pastor of a Baptist church in 2023 and high priest in the temple in Leviticus are not parallel offices. But it is worth wondering what it might mean if we did not expect our new pastor to bear the responsibility of our experience of God. Fill in the blank. When the new pastor arrives, we will blank. Have we not already supplied dozens of verbs into that blank over the last 10 months as we have shared with one another and held listening sessions and talked about what kind of church we need to be to thrive and survive? We must be careful that we do not give this new pastor responsibilities that he or she is destined to fail at because they were our verbs, our responsibilities, and not their own. A new pastor may be, able, may be able to help us find the path to take as a church on this journey. A pastor may help clear out the obstacles along that path so that we can walk around them. A pastor might encourage us on that journey and convince us to keep going when we want to stop. A pastor will never let us forget that we are on this journey as a community and not just as individuals. But a pastor cannot walk this journey for us. A pastor cannot control how or when God reveals God's self to us. A pastor cannot preach or hospital visit his or her way out of a church that is resistant to God's mysterious, challenging, and sometimes terrifying presence. Many churches before have placed their collective hands against the warm flesh of their own goat, of their pastor, and named each of their communal and institutional shortcomings and placed them on the head of that individual. They've transferred the great weight onto that person and then sent that person out into the wilderness, hoping and praying that their sins would never return. But they have chosen the wrong scapegoat. What if we did not expect our pastor to bring God to us? What if instead we let the pastor work to let us recognize God's presence that is already here in this place? What if we use this time between now and when a new pastor arrives as a chance to let our sins loose out into the wilderness so that we may start again? If we send our failures out, say them aloud and send them out into the wilderness, if we do all of these things, what might our journey forward look like? What kind of church might we be when it comes to welcome a new pastor to this community? It's a new year and we are very ready for this new chapter to begin, but it is also Epiphany Sunday. I've already said it once. It's my favorite day of the year and I know that I'm not supposed to have favorites. 12 days after Christmas, we celebrate Epiphany, the day in the church calendar that we remember the arrival of the wise men the Magi, the three kings, as they arrive to see the baby, or probably more like the toddler, Jesus, and they bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. At Epiphany, the word is out. The Christ child was born quietly, unassumingly in a stable, and there was an angel and there was a star and there were some shepherds to commemorate the moment, but for the most part, the birth of this child has been kept quiet. 
But at Epiphany, the secret is let loose out into the world. And the tiny world of Jesus and Mary and Joseph isn't so tiny anymore because the Magi, outsiders, Gentiles, have arrived and they realize the truth of who this king is. But their epiphany is still just a partial epiphany because they might realize that this Christ child is more than a baby, but they don't yet realize what kind of king he is going to be. They do not yet know what kind of kingdom he hopes to establish. We haven't yet had a chance to see the vision that this child is going to cast out into the world where the last are first, where children are welcomed without reservation, where extravagant sins are extravagantly forgiven. Indeed, this is going to be a king who takes our collective sins on his back and nails them to a cross, where caring for the least equates caring for Jesus himself, and where the peacemaker not the power maker, is blessed. And it is this king that the Magi meet that day. It is this king who receives gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Two weeks ago, we celebrated Christ's birth. The baby is here, the star is up, and we find ourselves compelled by its beauty and its mystery and its brightness. But we have the benefit of knowing what kind of king this child will be and what kind of kingdom he will establish. We know that the people who gather at this church, at the corner of Wayne and 11th, have stepped into a journey towards a star and towards a savior that will spend more time on the margins and with those who we find there than in a grand palace sitting on a throne. This gathering of people, us, this community of faith has committed to being a part of this kingdom. I wonder what kind of gift I would bring to the Christ child. Like the little drummer boy who brings the gift of a song, what gifts do I have to bring? What gifts do we as a church have to bring? What would a kingdom of peace and justice and radical love need from us right now on the eighth day of the new year as we remember the Magi's journey? Maybe the kingdom needs for us to remember this ancient ritual that calls for a community to confess its sins and to send them away to a place where they cannot live. What would our next chapter look like, I wonder, if we dared to take hold of our sins and transgressions as individuals and as a community and place them not on the back of a pastor to fix, but on a goat to send away? I wonder what our journey to the star might hold and how we might experience God if we are able to walk it unburdened and undefined by our past failures and shortcomings. I wonder what sorts of gifts we would present to the king of peace if we were brutally honest with our needs and our shortcomings. So again, I would like for you to find your post-it note just in case you have put it down. And feel free to pull a writing utensil out of your purse or find a pencil on the back of the pew in front of you. During our discipline of silence, I want you to think about what sins or transgressions you would place on a sacrificial goat. These can be transgressions, shortcomings, sins that you bear on your own, or they can be transgressions and shortcomings that we as a community of faith bear together. Write those things on your post-it note 
and then take a few moments in the silence and offer these to God, knowing that even when we fall short, as we so often do, God is there to fill in the gaps. Offer these prayers to God as we prepare to receive the gift of a star and as we prepare to gather at the table for the Lord's Supper. The secret is out. The star is up. Christ is born. So our question is not of whether or not we will begin the journey. We're already on it. Our question is whether we will carry an offering along that journey for the Christ child and what that offering might be. Will we carry our collective failures and transgressions, fooled into thinking that we can blame someone else for that burden? Or will we dare to confess and release them, opening up our hands to carry a gift worthy of the kind of kingdom and the kind of king that we confess to serve? <laughs>